0: Well, hello there, Richard Tubb here, coming to you live from the Acronis CyberFit Summit 2022 in beautiful Miami Beach. We are broadcasting live from the Acronis Cyber Studio right in the heart of the CyberFit Summit area, where 1,500 plus of the world's top managed service businesses, IT and cybersecurity professionals have come together for two days of learning and networking. And amongst those 1,500 people are some true legends in our industry, and I'm joined by one of them today. Eric Simpson is somebody I consider to be one of the true architects of what we now know as the managed service provider channel. Eric co founded, developed, and sold one of the first pure play MSPs in the industry, and then co founded MSP University and authored four books, all of which I read as a newcomer to the MSP industry when I started out, and which strongly influenced me to this day. Now, Eric has got over three decades of experience in the IT industry, serving as an enterprise CEO, VAR, MSP vendor, educator, advisor, speaker, and consultant. In short, this man is a true legend in our space.
1: He's blushing, but Eric, welcome to Tub Talk. Thank you so much, Richard. Thanks for having me. And you're very kind. I appreciate those kind words. It's, well, been, it's been quite a journey, I, I must say.
0: We caught up yesterday to give you uh, an idea of this man's modesty. And I, I referred to you as a legend in front of other people. And you said, no, I'm not a legend. I was just in the right place at the right time.
1: I think you're underplaying the impact that you've had on people like me and others, though. Well, you know, I do appreciate that. And and it's it, it's, uh, it's personally rewarding to hear, you know, that my struggles and my successes and my journey, you know, my being able to share that with others has actually helped them. And that's what really drives me these days. I love working with entrepreneurs. I love working with teams to... You know, figure out ways to move the needle together. And that's what really is exciting for me, you know, at this point in my career. Yeah, I was reflecting back on the very first time that you and I met
0: in person. So I said I was a bit of a fanboy of your work. And then um, I think it was in Houston, Texas. Mm -hmm. We got together at an event. We met in person. And you took me out to a a Lucha (laughs) Libre-inspired restaurant, from what I recall. And me being a big wrestling nerd, that was a a great time for us. That was probably mm, sort of mid-2000s. I'm going to guess, uh, and you were running MSP University at the time. How good's my memory on that
1: one? Yeah, no, it's pretty, pretty, pretty spot on. Um, we ran uh, MSP University kind of in tandem while we were still running our MSP practice, and then ultimately decided that there was so much more opportunity to help the channel and help others that we sold that practice, the MSP practice in 2007, and then just went full on into developing MSP University, and that's where we grew Uh, a partner channel of about 30,000 IT providers, believe it or not, in quite a short period of time. And we were doing, um, when, when you met me and when we got together, that was at one of our MSP University boot camps. And those were two to three day events early on. And we would do those, you know, it got kind of a little bit out of control. We kind of became an events company after a while, just teaching and training. IT providers on, you know, what, what we had learned about building an MSP practice. And um, we held 12 to 14 of those events a year. We were doing them internationally there. We ran those uh, type of events for, I guess, seven or eight years almost. Mm-hmm. And during that whole time, we experimented with different other services for MSP. Some were successful, some less so. We tried marketing. We tried appointment setting. Uh, we did a, a plenty of coaching and consulting Um, online training curriculum we were early kind of in the lms phase um learning management systems yeah Yeah. learning management systems online training um but that really you know once you start doing um a business like that the event side of the business is all consuming i mean just Mm. the logistics of recruiting attendees every single month and then hosting and putting on these, these workshops and getting great speakers and, and others to come in and then sponsors. It really, um, it was fun and exciting, but you know, looking back on it now, I'm glad I'm not doing any of that anymore. <laughs> and instead enjoying these great events like we are here at the Acronis CyberFit Summit 2022. Yeah. Well, let's rewind a little bit. So I,
0: I, you know, refer to you as one of the architects of managed services. Now, I know that makes you blush, my friend, but it's true. You know, you were one of the first people that talked about managed services, talked about recurring revenue of that nature. So let's rewind a little bit. Where, What were you doing before you sort of coined that term managed services? And you know, I'll, I'll give credit to our other friends here, so Carl Palachuk, uh, Harry Brails for yourself, but you were the pioneers, you were the people who built what we now uh, know as managed services. So tell us the story
1: a little bit. Where did you come from before that and what happened? So uh, before I decided to start my own IT practice, um, I basically grew up in the enterprise. I started as a level one technician at an enter- enterprise organization and worked my way up through the ranks there to you know, uh, CTO, uh, roles and then you know before I I left for the last year and a half I was building out call centers and service desks for this organization's Fortune one thousand clients. So we'd go in and we would uh, build out the infrastructure, the platforms, the systems. We would hire and train the technicians um, and then turn turn them over to you know the the client. And that's where I really learned uh, everything I know <laughs> or I knew about. Project management and service desk and KPIs and metrics and looking at cost and profitability. So um, when I, uh, in 1997, uh, launched an IT practice with a business partner, and that's really where I took all those um, experiences and applied them to our IT practice. Now, you know, uh, let me just be clear in 1997 even though i knew technology like you know many of our colleagues in the industry you know we we think hey you know i can do this better than you know who i'm reporting to or whatever and we (laughs) hang a shingle um what i didn't know was how to run a business you know and that's that was the school of hard knocks and that's where we started looking at okay you know how do we sell how do we price our services and back then we were doing what what most uh, IT professionals were doing back in the day, we were selling kind of time and materials based services, break, fix services, and then projects. So we were a big project professional services firm. And what led us to start and you meant you use the term coined the phrase. I didn't coin the phrase managed services. We didn't know what that phrase was. Yeah. Right. To be fair. So what we were what we did was we sold flat rate IT services. Mm. Right. So adjacent. Right. Um. But what we were trying to do, Richard, was really get more revenue from our existing engineers. So we had a formula that we were tracking that said, oh, well, this is how much we could actually bill from an engineer's perspective based upon how many hours, you know, they were working and what the bill rate was. And we quickly determined that to reach our revenue goals, we would have to hire something like 40 engineers in that in that model. And we were not interested in growing that much staff at all. So we started thinking about ways to get more from our existing uh, technical uh, staff. And that's when we started thinking about, well, what if we offered some, some sort of a subscription model, some sort of a model that would allow us to control the time that we deliver to the client and make the... Uh, relationship and the performance objectives based like we will do these things. We will monitor, uh, we will respond to service tickets, but it was breaking away from that dollar for an hour kind of mindset that was candidly pretty challenging for us and super challenging for the clients that we tried to convince early on that that was a good thing for them to do. So it really was a pragmatic approach to, you know, generating more margin where we were constrained in the number of labor hours that our team could deliver to clients. And that's kind of how it started.
0: Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And I'm not sure if I've ever shared this with you as a friend, but one of the things that drew me to your books and, you know, the whole concept of what we now know as managed services, my background was in corporate IT. So I was very familiar with like, you know, measuring and scalability and standardization uh, uh, and that nature. I was a one-man jobbing IT guy, crawling under desks, fitting Ethernet cables, and I thought, well, I want to grow a business, but there's only so many hours in the day, and I can't go beyond that. Nobody, we've all got 24 hours in the day, and then I came across your books, and it, you know the, the whole concept of recurring revenue and uh, getting away from that break-fix uh, methodology, you know, just works so well. Fascinating that you know we fast-forward you know 20 odd years, there's still a lot of people out there doing that. Right fix thing isn't there they essentially own a job and not a business you know what do you mark that down to when managed services is quite well known at this point
1: yeah it's interesting uh you know there are quite a lot of folks that you know start off kind of at that same level where you know it's a more of a transactional uh business model and i guess the way i would i would look at that would be from a Okay well if I'm working a job now, so I've got a daytime job or nighttime job, whatever it is, and I can only do service on the side, maybe it's easier for me to do um, service in a way that there's a there's a start starting point and an ending point like I will install that server it'll be you know eight hours and I get paid and I'm right. and I'm done and I think that that allows these young entrepreneurs to kind of test their mettle, if you will, like, okay, you, did I succeed on that project or what, you know, because you have that, that component that is confidence that has to be built up as well. Sure. Right. I mean, you know, a lot of us, you know, may be afraid of stepping out on our own, you know, there's risk there, right? This is my money that's on the line. Now I'm having to you know, and, and can I do this? Do I believe in myself enough to where I can risk more, Right. And especially, you know, nowadays when the economy is what it is, world events being what they are, maybe there's a maybe there's a component or an ingredient of kind of a risk aversion. Right. And I think once you start doing that and you're not exposed to communities um, and and haven't yet experienced other peers talking or being at great events like the Acronis CyberFit Summit that we're at here. Um, You don't have that exposure and experience. Like, for instance, you know, a real story from my migration from the corporate enterprise to private practice was in the enterprise. I'm sure uh, you'll remember, Richard, we had very expensive tools at our disposal, right? We had HP OpenView. We had Tivoli. We had all these things that were hundreds of thousands of dollars to monitor these, you know, now ancient networks, right? But, you know, the enterprise could afford it. And so when we go out into private practice, you know, and we had ticketing systems and whatnot, right, going out on our own, I actually coded our first ticketing system, you know, it was a Microsoft Access database, wow. later later <laughs> ported it to SQL, right, because, but it was it was what we needed. And there were no RMM tools, remote monitoring and management tools, when we decided to kind of you know, start our practice. But by the time, uh, I guess, 2004 rolled around or so, we started seeing PSA vendors out there. We saw some remote monitoring and management and patching tools out there. And that's when I said to myself, okay, all of that experience and expertise that I had, you know, amassed building out these call centers and service desks for other people, I could now do that for our company. And that's kind of what propelled the acceleration towards this flat fee monitoring responding on our terms you know and i knew all of the tiering and the escalation and all that right i wrote about that in some of my books um and that's really what kind of uh accelerated things but i think you know back to your question um folks that start out again and today there are so so many more communities, such a huge community of goodwill, so many vendors that are not, that are, weren't back in the day, didn't even exist in many cases. and the ones that did exist weren't yet MSP friendly from a pricing yeah. and a business alignment perspective. And so the industry had to grow along with the MSPs and the MSP movement together. And, you know, I'm just lucky that I was in the right place at the right time to kind of participate in all that because I saw the challenges on both sides and, you know, worked as, you know, in my own way to try to bridge that gap. And I think that's what, you know, hopefully, um, you know, helped ease that transition for a lot of, uh, of IT providers as well as the vendors that I was talking to to try to, you know, coordinate and say, look, this is what these folks need. This is how we're building our businesses. This is what concerns us. And it doesn't make sense for us to buy, you know, 2,500 licenses of something and pay that fee until we are able to deploy those solutions. So I hope in some way I was able to, you know, kind of accelerate that, that uh, understanding that, okay, well, if we're selling things as a subscription, then let's help our partners by offering uh, uh, pricing models and support that align with that model. And today I'm happy to say, you know, all the vendors at these great events and the ones that are serving the MSP community not only get that, but what's really surprising to me, Richard, is they're, they're now, they've taken up the mantle that I think me and my company and MSP University was fulfilling back in the day, providing that training, that coaching, that consulting. So now we're seeing vendors jumping in to accelerate that, um, you know, that business enablement component for MSPs, which, you know, I sadly didn't have the opportunity to partake of back in the day. You know, you've hit the nail on the head. So it was about 2005 that I started my managed services
0: uh, journey off the back of your books. And as we mentioned, uh, Carl Palachuk, Harry Brelsford. I was super, super fortunate. And I'm really open and honest about this, that at the time I was surrounded as this young geek, You know, uh, enthusiastic. I was surrounded by you know the most successful um, entrepreneurs in the industry who wanted to give freely of their time and experience to others. Now, this is something for people outside the IT industry. They, it, it feels alien. You know, I'm saying that the managed service industry is so special from that regard. And as you say, you know, I spent a lot of time in the U.S. with yourself and others learning all of this. Uh, The community aspect of it, just incredible, really accelerated my growth, you know, not only as a business owner, but as a human being uh, uh, there as well. Fast forward to today. Man, I don't want to sound like the old man of the industry, but the kids today have got it made because there is so much out there. You know, we're at the Cronus CyberFit Summit, 1,700 plus people today. Every vendor that you speak to, thanks to the influence of yourself and others, are focused on helping you to grow your business. Whereas back in the day, you know, there was, um, there was an odd book here and there from yourself and Carl. There wasn't a lot of info, so you had to go to the individuals individually. Today, man, you are overwhelmed by this uh, uh, cool stuff, which I guess brings me to the question. Like, you're seen as a channel expert, thought leader, influencer in managed
1: services. But how do you explain to people what you do today? <laughs> <laughs> i don't think my my wife or my kids even know what what i do today you it's know not, yeah. and both of my sons work for me now doing digital marketing and video production and things like that and you know we were at a dinner with some uh friends the other day and and my older son had uh some friends over and they said oh so what is your what is your dad doing you know just kind of stumbled right and i i sometimes do the same thing right and i just say look you know just uh Business consulting. Just leave it at that, right? <laughs> try and <laughs> put a simple label on it. Business yeah. consulting. Yeah. But you know, you touched on something a minute ago, Richard, that I think is is very uh unique uh about our industry. And it is the community and it is the friendships that we built. I mean, I always say, Look, we're the old dogs in the channel now, right? I mean, we're we're here to 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 try to help uh you know those that come uh come out and seek us, and we're happy to do that. But you know, the community is something that I've never experienced before. The, it's so welcoming and everyone is so friendly. And like you say, it's, it's not a situation where you find in other industries where, oh, we're not going to share secrets because, you know, that's competitive advantage and things like that. And I've never found that to be the case. I mean, you know, in general, I mean, in, in, the, in the communities and the friendships that I've uh, cultivated, you know, including yours and others it's just been a very en- enriching and i think that when you have that it certainly helps accelerate um you know the the rising tide you know lifts all, lifts boats. all boats and yeah. and especially when the vendors and the distributors came in really you know to to really support uh the growth i think that that we saw a you know almost a hockey stick kind of a ramp especially the last you know five or six years yeah
0: Let's talk about your books a little bit then. Um, so you're the author of four best-selling books on managed services. Now, I can remember reading The Guide to a Successful Managed Service Practice, What Every SMB IT Service Provider Should Know About Managed Services, in the year it was released. So that was like 2006, right? Correct. Yeah, it's been a huge influence on me. Uh, if you were to rewrite that book today, what would you say has been the biggest change in the managed service industry you know, since 2006?
1: Um, well, I I am writing the follow up to that book. I now. suspected you might be. So, there you go. But it's it, it's 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 huge, and I, I, I you're asking me to think of the biggest change. I think the biggest change. You know, if I had to nail one thing, but I want to expand it to several others, that would be the acceptance of this way of receiving services by. And customers. Right. I think the biggest challenge that uh, we had as an MSP was convincing, of course, the, the the toughest client you'll ever have is an existing client that you've kind of treated as a VIP all these years. Right. So that was the biggest challenge we had was, you know, we talk to a client, say, hey, we're doing this new way of doing business now. And we'd like you to, you know, pay us up front uh, while we do all these things every month. And we'll provide you some reports and some consulting and things like that. And they'd be like, that Eric, I mean, you're the cheapest provider in town, and whenever something breaks, you guys are here so fast, right? Why would we pay you more in advance, you know, for something that we don't really understand? And I think that, you know, that we had, again, we didn't know we we didn't know when we started our business, so we were trying to provide the best service, the cheapest, the fastest, and all that, and we had painted ourselves into a corner, right? But I think you know the biggest. Um, the biggest transformational um, thing that I can think of is that it became an accepted way of receiving services, outsourced IT. I think it had a, a negative connotation early on. Agreed. Right. And so the 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 SMB and even you know in the mid air enterprise now today, we're and thanks to COVID and things like that, we're even seeing a, a dramatic increase in co-managed IT opportunities for MSPs that we're never able to sell co-managed IT to a mid or enterprise organization in the past, but because of yeah. COVID and the hybrid workforce and all that, MSPs were ready. We were in the right place at the right time. We, we had the tools, the processes, and we could serve the, the technical and cybersecurity needs of these hybrid workforces. So that was kind of cool. But I think the biggest thing was getting the, and it was because we had more and more providers promoting these services and then, you know, the vendors got behind it as well. And I think that was probably the biggest catalyst. If the if we'd still had to fight for every single managed service agreement, um, we probably wouldn't see the dramatic growth in, you know, the MSP um, business model that we see today. So that yeah. was probably the biggest thing, I think. And then, you know, we can talk about some other things that I think were an influence as well. Yeah, I want to touch on the the co-managed IT. Now,
0: I recorded an episode with the wonderful Vera Tucci, who's a, uh you know, Italian uh, IT entrepreneur, and she and her company, her MSP, absolutely nailing it in the co-managed IT space. And I'd encourage anybody listening to this, go back, listen to that episode. Vera, a very, very smart and lovely lady. Um, IT, internal IT departments saw us, and I say us as MSPs, as they viewed us really suspiciously. I'm not going to quite say the enemy, because if you think about it. Competitors. competitors. We, were, we, were, we were coming for their jobs.
1: Yeah. They're yeah.
0: like, well, they do things faster, better, cheaper than us. Why would, we, why would we do that? Then, as you say, the pandemic came along. And I was speaking to Vera about this, and she said it really took off for her, because internal IT departments, you know, and you and I both come from that corporate IT background. We know the tools are single tenants. Mm-hmm. You know, they're not multi-tenanted. They're uh, focused on looking after a single customer at a time. And the internal IT departments just don't have the breadth of knowledge. They don't have the RMM tools and things of that nature. So I noticed a shift, and I wonder if you noticed this too during COVID, where we went from being, you know, the suspicious outsiders, the enemies, to, oh, coming in, guys, we need to have a
1: conversation with you about this. Yeah, and and today, you know, I work with hundreds of MSPs directly, and, and that's what we saw. And then the other, you know... The other big um, opportunity that came along with uh, COVID that accelerated it was, you know, I talk about three things. It's cloud migration, it's cybersecurity, and it's, you know, hybrid or remote workforce support. And those three things kind of were the perfect storm at that time. Because obviously to support remote workforces, you need the cloud and you need cybersecurity. So now I think the biggest opportunity for MSPs is building out your cybersecurity, enhanced cybersecurity portfolio, and delivering that to customers and making sure that it aligns with their cyber liability insurance policies, minimum requirements, you know, and, you know, I have a session today where I'm going to talk about getting every client to say yes to enhanced cybersecurity here at the Acronis CyberFit Summit. And some of the things that I talk about are, you know, getting rid of clients that will not agree to enhance cybersecurity because the risk is so great, not only to them, but also to you as the MSP and by extension to your other clients. Because think about this, Richard, let's say that 99% of your clients agree and say, we're going to take your your, your cybersecurity uh, portfolio. And I like, you know, good, better, best. I do bundles and things like that. And I say, look, make your your minimum bundle that you require every single client to take and make that the minimum and then build from there based on what their needs are. And so let's say 99% take your advice and say, yes, strengthen our cybersecurity. We trust you. Um, We need it. And 1% don't. Okay. So now you've got 99% of your clients paying you to sleep better at night because you're sleeping better at night because you're doing things in an automated fashion and monitoring and all that. And one client of that 1% now has a security incident. Mm. What do we feel we need to do now? As, as great human beings, we say, okay, let's go save them. Let's rescue them. Now, look what happens. We've not been enhancing their cybersecurity. We've not been monitoring for breaches and things like that. Um, we have to stop serving our existing clients, go rescue this one client, and then figure out how we're going to get paid to do it. Because as you know, the cost of recovery from an incident can be catastrophic to some businesses. Yes. And because we haven't aligned our services to the minimum requirements of their cyber liability insurance policy, now the story keeps getting worse and worse, right? So they're not going to be able to file a claim against the policy because the underwriter or the insurance carrier is going to go, well, you didn't do any of these things you were supposed to do, so we're denying your claim. Mm. So it's a horrible outcome for all involved. So. You know, I challenge MSPs to to look inside themselves and say, are you, you know, and reflect, are you willing to sacrifice your business because a client will not, you know, do what's needed to protect yeah. their business? I mean, I always say you can't care more about a client's business than yeah. they do. Exactly. Sometimes it's tough in, in in real life to, you know, to come to terms with that. Sometimes we delay. Okay, well, we'll give them another 30 days, another 60 days. Well, We don't have that kind of time. No. And
0: again, you've hit the nail on the head there. You can't care more about the client's network than they do. Yet many MSPs listening to this, many IT professionals will feel that way that, well, you know, I put advice to the client, they're just not listening. So that whole concept of essentially firing a client, Mm -hmm. you know, um, whilst it sounds scary, you and I have both learned the hard way, it's necessary, isn't it? Because- The reputational impact nowadays, not to mention the financial impact of the client, you know, experiencing a breach, then turning around to you and saying, why didn't you protect us, Eric? And you're like, I've tried to. But it's absolutely crazy. So cyber protection, insurance, things of that nature, is that something that you recommend to
1: MSPs nowadays? I recommend that they should have it and mm-hmm. they should and they should put their oxygen mask on first mm-hmm. before helping others. Like, you know, we're traveling now again. Right. So we're we're hearing that message when we're on an airline. So consume that, make sure that you're protected and then absolutely require your clients to have a cyber liability insurance policy, because at the end of the day, as I, we just talked about, if something bad does happen, yeah. Sometimes a client's pockets aren't deep enough to cover the remediation costs, not to mention the the PR and all of the bad things that can happen. So we have to and you know, it's like it's like auto insurance. Right. Uh, you know, remember the days, you know, when I hear the, the 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 objections all the time when when partners say, well, you know, my clients tell me that, um you know, nobody wants their data. Nobody's concerned because they're so small. Yeah, we're, we're not important Yeah, enough. we're not important. Yeah, yeah, but but you want your data, don't you? Mm. I mean, how are you going to run payroll? How are you going to pay your bills? How are you, right? They're not thinking, right? So, you know, this is, it, it's an auto insurance policy, right? We never want to experience an automobile accident. You know, I'm certain that most of us have been in one, um, but that's there in case something happens. Can you imagine Having to come out of your pocket to pay for another person's vehicle and your vehicle if you're at fault, yeah, holy cow, right? Mm. What would people do? So it's the same kind of a concept. So, you know, it when we uh, write our our managed service agreements or managed cybersecurity agreements, remember those statements of work are a box of services that we provide so we're going to do these services now in case there is a breach remediation is not included in that that is what we're doing to try to um you know strengthen that that uh, posture so that you know we can defend against breaches but if something does happen you know, I never recommend for an for an IT provider MSP to say, "Oh yeah, remediations included." Are you kidding me? Yeah. You you, you know, I don't think anybody can write that check, you know. Maybe yeah. the cyber liability insurance carrier can, and that's why we need the policy because now we can feel confident that the strategy is when there is a breach and we talk to the client about this in advance and that's we we set it all up so we say, "Okay, let's make sure that we're aligning" our services to make sure that we're meeting those minimum requirements of the policy. So in case something does happen, right, in the unlikely, you know, event that the cabin loses pressure, you know, there will be an oxygen mask that we can put on, which is filing a claim uh, with the carrier and then having them, you know, pay for that. And in many cases, Richard, as you know, some of these um, insurers decide to pay the ransom, mm. Right. Because they figure, okay, well, this is the, you know, this is the best recommended uh, way to go. And, of course, that's a lot of money, too. So, again, you know, I, we'd rather have that policy behind us, no matter what the appropriate response is, rather than rely on, you know, a customer's bank account. Yeah. Well, let's
0: change uh, tact from talking about oxygen masks falling down, Eric, because I've got a flight back to the UK later this week. You're making me nervous, man. Uh, <laughs> let's talk, but on a serious subject. You know, we're at a Acronis CyberFit Summit here today. My mind has been blown by some of the tools, the platforms that are now available to MSPs to help keep their clients safe. But I remember this from uh, back in the day of running an MSP, and I speak to lots of MSPs now who face this problem. They speak to clients about the new latest cybersecurity uh, protection that's in place, cyber protection. And the clients turn around and say, sounds good, but I thought you were already doing that for us. Yeah. So it becomes difficult to have that conversation about upgrading. What advice would you give to listeners if they've ever had that conversation and people say, look,
1: we don't want to pay for more. We thought you were doing this for us already. Yeah, that's probably the second uh, biggest objection that we hear right when we're in the sales process with a client if it's a prospect they'll typically say something like well we have somebody that does that right so that's so i'm going to weave that into the answer here so there's the we we have somebody that does that or if you're the provider well eric we thought you're already doing that for us right why you want to charge us more so in the first case where it's a prospect because we're going to talk about you know getting new sales here the uh the correct response to that is, so you have someone that does that for you already, Richard? Is that, is that correct? Oh, yeah. Yeah, we have somebody that does that. And, and what exactly are they doing for you? Right. So just, it's just like, you know, one of the, the steps to, un, to unpacking an objection and overcoming it. Right. So what is it exactly that they're doing for you? And maybe they know, maybe they say some things and you're like, okay, that's okay. They're in the right ballpark. Right. In your mind, you're thinking this. But then the next question is the killer are their services in alignment with your cyber liability insurance policy in mm-hmm. case there's a breach right so I'm, in, I'm i'm introducing some fear uncertainty and doubt there and then the second point and they say well yeah they told me how do they demonstrate that to you that's the killer right so that's the killer question how are they demonstrating that they're doing these things for you and that if there is a breach you will be successful in filing a claim and getting it approved with your insurance carrier, right? So I want to raise a little bit of a wedge, right? I want them to think about, hmm, I'm not sure if they are or not. And then you can say, well, look, why don't you allow us to do a a cybersecurity assessment for you, right? It's non-intrusive, and you have a way to say, look, let us just, wouldn't wouldn't you appreciate just having a third party objectively give you a scorecard? On exactly what your cybersecurity posture is today, and that's the key, right? You're trying to close them on that assessment first because that's where it's like back in the day, Richard. Before you know when we had our MSP, it was always the backup. We always did the you know the backup assessment, and twice out of probably hundreds of backup assessments did we do that we didn't find something wrong that we could point to yeah. and try to win some business, right? So same thing with this. Now, if it's an existing client and they say, well, Eric, what are you talking about? We thought you were already doing this for us. You know, why Why do you want us to do something different and pay more for it? And I'm going to go back to an automobile analogy. I'm a car guy. Sure. I like I like restoring cars, you know, in my spare time. That's what kind of takes my mind off of things. And so, you know, I'll go back and I heard this from a cybersecurity speaker at another conference. And they said, and, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to swipe it because it's relevant. Remember the days, some of us do, you and I do, right? I don't know if a lot of other people do, but remember the days when there were cars with no seatbelts? You could buy a brand new car and there were no seatbelts in the car. Remember the days when there was no anti-lock brakes? Remember the days when there was no airbags in cars? Remember the days when there was no third brake light? So all these safety enhancements come along as we identify risk right? And we're trying to protect the occupants of the vehicle. And so the, the conversation is similar, and please, you know, listeners, use this in, in your existing client conversation. Say, well, remember, you know, the days when there were no seatbelts and, and analog brakes and things like that? The risk has evolved. More cars on the road, more drivers, et cetera. So we have to adapt. And the cybersecurity risk, yes, 10 years ago when, when you know, we uh, set you up with with IT support and and cybersecurity and antivirus and anti malware. It was great for then, but we've got to put some anti-lock brakes on. We got to put some airbags in. We got to put that third brake line because these cyber criminals have advanced well beyond those days. And you know, it's it's my responsibility, Richard, to make sure that I'm advising you to protect you from from these things. And, you know, there's statistics out there uh, up the wazoo. You could search, you know, uh, any survey, cybersecurity survey, and find these statistics that you can really scare clients with. But you got to be careful on what statistics you present to clients. I've seen some numbers that say, oh, the average cost of recovery for an IT or, I'm sorry, a cybersecurity incident is who knows, you know, $1.8 million, right? (laughs) Mention that to any SMB and their face is going to drop. Right. And, but of course, these are taking into account every incident, you know, in the industry. So you've got to kind of, you know, whittle it down and, and, and choose the statistics that make the most sense for you. But at the end of the day, what you don't want to do is, is price out price out, your services, so your clients can't subscribe. I know I work with uh, tons of partners as I mentioned, and some of them want to deliver enterprise-grade cybersecurity for a small and medium business. And the the price uh, gap between what they're currently paying you for MSP services and what you want to sell them for cybersecurity can sometimes be two or three times higher than what they're paying. So you've got to be uh, uh, you have to take that into account when you're pricing your services. And so that's why I say you can have a good, better, best bundle of services, and you'll build, you'll build bundles for two audiences. So if you have existing clients today that you haven't got them to sign up for enhanced cybersecurity, that will be a bundle just adding additional cybersecurity to those uh, existing agreements. And we typically do that with a statement of work that's added to your existing MSA, All right? right? Now, for new prospects, you're going to have the hybrid solution. So, let's say you have a good, better, best bundles of managed services plus cybersecurity. So, now, let's say your, your entry-level bundle is not just managed IT services. It's managed IT services plus your essential package for cybersecurity, and that becomes your new offering for that one. Same thing with better and best. So, when I say you're building uh, uh, bundles for two, uh, for two audiences, The existing clients, you don't want to sell them a whole new agreement with everything in it now and have that big sales conversation and potentially have objections that may drive them to go find another provider. You just say, look, it's only going to be an extra so much per month, which doesn't seem too much more than what they're you know paying now. Maybe 30% more a month is probably reasonable. And if clients really push back on that, you really got to take a hard look. Mm. at that relationship. Because the first thing, question I ask partners when we're kind of doing an assessment at the year end going into, new, into the new year, which is kind of timely for right now, is to say, look, let's look at your clients list right now and let's segment them into A, B and C customers. You remember that from the books and the, and the boot camps, Eric,
0: and I'm going to give a public thanks to you here, not to go off a tangent too much. I have used that A, B and C bucket analogy so often when I'm on stage on this podcast. So for anybody who listens to this has heard me talk about it, you know where I got this concept from now.
1: <laughs> <clears throat> yep, thank you. And so your C customers are the ones that potentially may be your smallest revenue generating segment, right? But within your C customer base, I would say, look, you go in there and look and try to make A, B, and C out of the C customers. And for the C of the C customers, ask yourself, Would I be more profitable if they weren't my client, Mm. right? I mean, and it it happened to us in our MSP. We had some C customers that after the final analysis were like, yeah, we'd be more profitable if they weren't our customer. But we always have the hope, you know, the hope that, hey, their business is going to grow. We're going to be there for them. We're going to help them. But, you know, quarter after quarter after quarter of zero profit or, or low profit on these customers it's a double edged sword because not only are you not being as profitable as you need to be but the other side of the sword is they are taking a service position in your client list yes that's preventing you from finding another a or b client and you could serve i i argue sometimes that if you have the right a and b clients you might be able to serve a couple of those when you're replacing a you know, low-paying C customer because they're consuming all of your services, right? They're paying you for enhanced cybersecurity. You're not having to react to things.
0: We talked earlier on about firing customers and how scary that can be. And for anybody not familiar with the ABC, you know, uh, buckets uh, uh, for customers, real simple, you know, anybody listening to this who are the clients who pay you on time? Who are the clients who listen to your advice, take action on it? Who are the clients who treat you with respect? Those are your A-list clients. Now, most people listening to this will have a few A-list clients. A lot of B-bucket clients or B-list clients, These, you know, they mostly listen to your advice, mostly pay on time. They're not too bad. But then the C-bucket clients, let me just, let me summarize this with one quick image for you. The C-bucket clients are the ones where their number comes up on the DDI at your help desk and you're like, Eric, I just want to give this up and go and run a fishing tackle store instead or something. We've all got sea, we've all had C-list, sea uh, bucket clients. To your point, though, I learned really quickly about firing those clients that, it, you know, whilst giving up the revenue is scary, the amount of energy it frees up for you to then go and work with better clients who will
1: pay you more, respect your time, just makes everything so much more fun. So, yeah. And I'll add one more comment to that. It makes your technicians and engineers so happy to see you taking taking uh, action on these because otherwise, you know, and, and in this day and age, you know, when it's so difficult to find good technicians and to hold on to them, you know, they're looking for, you know, any opportunity. Like like you said, they're, they're taking these calls from these noisy customers all the time that are disrespectful, that, uh, you know d- – talk bad about them to you and like, Hey, your technician doesn't know what he's doing. We've all had that. Right. Mm. I mean, I've fired clients because they've, you know, cursed at one of my technicians on the phone or being mean or, you know, so, so we're not, we're not, you know, having any of that, that doesn't play in our book. But again, when your uh, technicians see that you're going through this exercise and I recommend going through it on a yearly basis, a, B and C and take a look at what C customers you and in our case, right, we cared about every single one of our clients, whether they're an a client or a C customer. Sure. so you know we would help find them a home with another provider, right, and certainly help with the transition and all that. but um, I wrote a, a blog post about firing clients recently. I, I read think, it yeah. yeah, so that that will that, include that in the show notes as well. For yeah, that really kind of summarizes you know, hey look it's it's Q four. You know, it's time to fire some some customers. (laughs) And I think it generated quite a bit of buzz, um, a lot of commentary, because, you know, some folks agree with it, some folks don't agree with it. But I think I lay out the case pretty, pretty successfully. I used a a sports analogy, right, in that when you're, you know, when you're trying to get to the championship, whatever, you know, whatever sport it is, football, soccer, baseball, whatever it is, you're trying to get to the championship, you've got to make some player trades along Mm -hmm. the way. You know, you've got to put together the right team to help you get to the championship that year. And, you know, you're trying to build a very successful MSP practice or MSSP practice, whatever it is, and you want to serve better and better clients. And so going through an ABC assessment every year, um, you know, making more room for better A and B clients, you're making those player trades that help you get to your business championship every single year.
0: Yeah. You are on fire with the analogies, by the way. (coughs) The auto... Uh, you know, with the cyber, security, uh, cyber uh, security, that really works for me. And the sports thing, you know, this is why I look up to you, Eric. You've got these stories. <laughs> <laughs> so we're, we are here live at the Acronis CyberFit Summit, and uh, we're in the beautiful Acronis Cyber Studio, which is a weird experience for us, isn't it, Eric? You know, um, uh, for those of you listening, we're sat in a studio with glass walls, literally in the middle of the uh, summit there. People are walking past. People are watching us record this podcast. We're waving at people as it goes. Really enjoying the experience. It's uh, somewhat uh, unique, somewhat different. Um, for anybody, go it, ahead, sorry, Eric. It really
1: is the biggest human fishbowl I've ever been in. Yeah. I, I don't know about you. Oh, definitely. <laughs> I've never done this before. So, uh, yeah. yeah we're, we're encased in glass here on display for all to see.
0: It makes me feel a little bit, you know, the um, the U.S. breakfast morning shows, uh, when they have them in Times Square. Mm. You can see all the people walking in the background. It's a little bit like that. We'll, we'll post some photographs so you can see what we mean to the show notes. Uh, for this. So we've got people looking in on us now and uh, a lot of you know listeners are going to understand a little bit more about Eric Simpson but I want to ask you as a friend I want to understand what makes Eric Simpson tick. So you know I've been in this space for like 20 years now I still get excited speaking to MSPs I know you do too. You've been a channel leader for 30 years. Well, that's that's about right yeah. And you know what makes Eric
1: Simpson get out of bed every morning at this point in your career? Um, Well, you're very generous. Thank you again. And I I don't know if I've I've been in the channel for 30 years. I don't know if, you know, I've been a leader for all of those years (laughs) because that takes, you know, dedication and wanting to, you know, improve yourself and and that. And I think what what excites me at this stage uh, of my life and career is just, you know, building great relationships with folks like you, Richard, and other colleagues that we've talked about uh, on the show so far. And really working with uh, folks that want to make things happen. I like being part of, of um, movements. I like, I like seeing uh, business growth. I like, I like speaking to audiences. I like the energy of interacting with like-minded folks and the community here uh, is just so amazing and having the opportunity to, to speak and work with folks to help them really grow. And, and, the The flip side of that is I really enjoy learning from the experiences. You know, I read a, um, there's a book out there and it's called Million Dollar Consulting by uh, Alan Weiss. And something in that, I read that years ago and I try to reread it, you know, once every year along with a couple of other books that I really enjoy. And Alan makes a really bold statement in the book and he says, You know, and it's all about, you know, trying to be a better consultant to your clients and to yourself and to to understand and grow your worth, to understand your value as a consultant. And really, you know, kind of driven some of my thought process about, you know, uh, the value that I provide and then the fees that I charge and things like that. and not feeling guilty about it. Right. Right. Because I think a lot of us, you know, in our early careers, we think we try to project what a customer might pay for services rather than really... Um, sharing and and uh, demonstrating the value yes. that's provided to them, and then charging a commensurate rate. Because at the we end- make
0: assumptions, don't we? Over mm-hmm. oh, they
1: can't afford this, or you ask them. Yeah, what's the worst that they happen? They pull a face and say no. Exactly, exactly. So, so Alan says if you're not learning something new from every consulting engagement and i expand that to any engagement coaching engagement conversation i've expanded that in my brain he says if you're not learning something new then not only are you doing yourself a disservice but you're doing your clients a disservice Mm. and you know when you unpack that and i realize that like right now for instance here's a great uh, analogy so i'm doing a i've always done a lot of work in helping partners price and bundle their solutions and and do that, and we've been doing a ton of cybersecurity uh, work in that area. And I've just started learning about um, the vast um, uh, different types of services and solutions that are that different partners are using uh, to solve the challenges. You know, a Cronus being you know a key part of that. But then to bring that information to the next client, and then understand what they're using to solve some of these challenges, and then bring that to the next client. And I'm learning. About their specific vertical markets and the challenges that they're having with these markets, and that just makes me a better overall coach or consultant yeah. for clients that come, uh, you know, that that I help afterwards. But also, it it builds my professional experience and expertise and confidence that I can tackle, you know, a challenging situation with, whether that be a partner, whether it be a vendor, so, you know, uh, uh, situation. And because of that, I've begun doing, you know, channel program strategy and and enablement and recruitment strategies with vendors as well. And it's just simply been because of that ability to say, I want to say yes to opportunities. I want to work with teams that are driven and that are excited about growth and don't see uh, a challenge as an insurmountable problem, right? Right. Because there's two types of people I think I've run into. I'm sure you'll agree, Richard. It's the type of people, and it's kind of like the person I used to be, and I'm going to say this tongue-in-cheek, the people-hating engineer. You know what I mean? <laughs> I'm, I was the people-hating engineer. That means that, look, you could walk into my office, and I'd be working in my monitors, whatever, my head to the screen, and you'd have a conversation with the back of my head. And then at the end of the conversation, I'd say something like, okay, just email me, you know, and I'll take care of it, right? <laughs> to To evolve from that, to be you know, someone that appreciates people, right? Right, and that that was a big, I think, transformational journey that I went on to try to improve myself to become a better leader, a better coach, a better husband, father, you know, friend. Um, so now, what drives me is really instead of the technology that used to really interest me and drive me, now it's the people, yes, right, and and understanding, um, you know everyone is a little bit different and how to adapt your behavior to connect and communicate better with them and i think that you know that's something that i would hope that all msps would learn because it really helps you have better conversations with existing clients with your staff right with prospects to really understand what you ask me what makes me tick i mean how often do we as msps ask our clients that right you know and in fact that whole ABC customer segment thing, I didn't come up with that came from a customer, a client of mine in my MSP when I was trying to, you know, evolve uh, personally and try to become more strategic. And so I started asking clients, hey, so, you know, what is it that you want out of this, out of your company? What is it that that you want to do? Um, And what's your goal? And I had a client, his name was Scott, and he had an accounting firm. And I'll never forget this because it was a life lesson that kind of I carry with me and you're now promoting it as well, A, B, and C. He says, Well, I he said to me, and he had a an accounting practice in Irvine, California, a very, you know, you know, pricey um, environment. And uh, he said, I want to be the highest priced accounting firm in Irvine, California. Mm. And That was kind of an unexpected answer, right? For me, a novice, like, okay, I'm going to try to, you know, show my client that I'm trying to be more strategic. And he says, well, I'm going to be the highest priced accounting firm in Irvine. And I went, well, how how do you do that, Scott? How are you going to do that? And then he said, well, every year I segment my customers into A, B, and C, and I will sell my C client agreements to all these other accountants. And then I will raise my rates and bring in new a clients at my higher rate. Wow. Yeah. And I do that every year and he did it. And that's when I learned that I went, Holy cow, like, you know, hit me in the head that that was brilliant to me. So he brought that to me. So again, I learned something there. So, you know, I just love interacting. I love working with, uh, you know, Uh, leaders. I love working with teams. I love, you know, to understand what my role is in the engagement. Am I going to be the leader in this phase of the engagement or am I going to be a team member in the engagement? And just to execute in a way that's measurable and meaningful. Yeah. Well, do me a favor, Eric. Next
0: time you speak to Scott, your friend there, say thank you from Richard from the UK because I have taken that and I've used it within my own business after learning from you. So pass my thanks on to Scott. He's uh, made me a lot of money over the years through that little (laughs) team, as have uh, you. We're we're coming towards the end of our time uh, here, but I just wanted to to touch on something. You mentioned Scott and your clients being an influence on you. You've learned from them. You know, I'm open and honest. Yourself, Harry, Brailsford, Carl Palachuk, massive influences uh, on me. But who else influences you? Are there any people that you consider to be mentors or uh, coaches of that nature? Yeah,
1: that's a great question. I mean, I I would name uh, the folks that you mentioned, uh, (laughs) as well as, you know, other other folks in the channel. Uh, Amy Luby was also tip of the spear, along with Carl and I back in the day, you know, launching services for MSPs. But I would have to say that my biggest influencer um, has to be my grandfather and my grandfather on my mother's side, he was a, he was an immigrant. He, um, my, my mom's family is Dominican. So they're from the Dominican Republic. So my grandfather uh, was a Dominican. He moved his family to New York. And in my youth, we actually lived in my grandmother's house in Queens, New York. And it was, uh, you know, there was a fully built out basement there and we lived downstairs and my mom had married, uh, a a U.S. citizen at that time uh, who became my stepfather. And I remember my grandfather was an accountant. That was his trade. He had learned this and he had gone to school for it. And he would go do his day job every single day. And I was very young then. I was probably seven, eight, nine years old. Okay. And he would come home and he wanted to become an entrepreneur. And I would, you know, peek my head into his, he had his little office set up upstairs in the house and I'd come in, you know, my, his grandson eight nine years old, and i'd see him you know typing on this manual typewriter with you know remember carbon paper oh yeah, yeah. i mean we remember carbon paper i don't even know if it exists anymore <laughs> i'm gonna have to do
0: diagrams for some of the younger people watch uh, listening to the show maybe so yeah
1: so he'd have carbon paper and he's making duplicate copies typing on this manual typewriter And what he's doing is he's sending uh requests to uh like manufacturing companies all over the world trying to see if they'd sent him samples of their of their stuff and he would be their agent in the United States. And uh-huh. he would and I just remember he would get things from, you know, all different parts of the world. And there were boxes of like kids toys and all this stuff. And in my mind, you know, being a young kid, I was like, oh, I want some of those toys. Right. <laughs> so I didn't really dawn on me until later how hard he worked like he'd be working to late at, at, you know, late at night, every night doing this and trying to launch this, um, uh, this, 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 this company. And he never, I don't think he ever really made it right. He never really made it, but he was an honorable person. He took care of his family. He cared for every single one of his family and the way he treated friends and colleagues. I really looked up to him. So he's been an inspiration to me and, you know, he's no longer with us now, but, uh, I'm, I'm choking up a little bit, but whenever I think of someone that, you know, I would, I would like to be, you know, have the same kind of be known for emulate those traits. It would be him very, very honorable, hardworking entrepreneurial dream, never never actually achieved it so i'm i'm just you know i just feel blessed and lucky that i was able to experience that i think it drove me and uh you know uh in his memory you know i appreciate the success that i've had eric thank you for sharing that was what a
0: wonderful story and your grandfather sounds like an incredible human being so uh what's next for eric simpson in the managed service space we talked about you've been a, a channel leader for at least 20 years, 30 years, I'm going to say, but you'll, you'll argue the point with me
1: on there. What's next for Eric
0: Simpson in the MSP space?
1: Well, big plans, big plans for 2023. I'm going to uh, launch a couple of new websites. You know, so far, it's been one website, uh, ericsimpson.com, and it's served kind of two audiences. It's served MSPs that want to uh, you know, learn how to improve their businesses, either for, through online training or through coaching or consulting with me. And then it's also served vendors and distributors that want, you know, channel program strategy or sales enablement for their PAMs and BDMs internally or enabling their channel partners that are already partners of theirs or recruiting partners. So doing, you know, webinars and marketing and things like that for them. Well, it's it's getting a little bit unwieldy. So now I'm going to split those and there'll be one website focused specifically for MSPs and then one one website will be more of an agency type of website to serve the needs of my uh, vendor and distributor clients. And, you know, hopefully we'll grow the team a little bit next year as well to help us, you know, even deliver more services to more uh, clients. Eric, great minds think alike because I'm in the middle of going
0: through that exact process <laughs> with my own website Wonderful! As well. So Wonderful. there we go. You influenced me in more ways than you could possibly know. So I want to say like a public thank you. You're a great friend. I have learned so much from you over the years. And uh, again, I'll never forget the time you took me to a Lucha Libre uh, restaurant in Houston, Texas there. My first time spending time with you. Always a pleasure to spend time with you. Before we go, if anybody listening this wants to find out more about Eric Simpson, wants to reach out to you and continue the conversation, where's the best place for them to
1: find you? Well, for now and in the future, we'll still keep that website that'll kind of direct folks. But it's ericsimpson.com, E-R-I-C-K Simpson.com. And, you know, can reach out to me there. Eric, you are a legend. Thank you for joining us on Tub Talk. Thanks so much for having me, Richard. I really appreciate it. And looking forward to continuing our conversation after today's talk. Let's do it. Cheers, mate. Cheers.